Andy, my dude, have you heard of the magical website builder known as Squarespace? Ugh, not another Squarespace ad. I feel like every podcast is sponsored by them. <laughs> hey, 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 don't knock it till you try it. Yes, okay, it is overhyped. But actually, it lives up to the hype. Squarespace is like a website fairy godmother. With a click of a button, your site transforms into a beautiful masterpiece. A website fairy godmother? That sounds interesting. What makes it so magical? Well, for starters, those slick templates make anyone look like a professional web designer. Pick one, customize the colors and fonts to match your brand, and voila. Plus, the drag-and-drop fluid engine is so easy, your grandma could build a site on Squarespace. Well, she did knit me a lovely scarf last Christmas. Maybe website design is next. Exactly. And when you're ready to sell your Nana's handmade scarves online, Squarespace has built-in e-commerce. Add a store with one click. Get flexible payment options. Then watch those sales roll in. And when she wants to teach others her steezy scarf skills, Squarespace's new courses feature is just the ticket. Nana can set up her curriculum and enrollments and payments in a snap and become the next e-knitting influencer. Wow, you really sold me with the grandma angle. Sign me up for that free try. Just go to thenextreel.com slash Squarespace and transform your site into a beautiful Squarespace masterpiece. Well, thanks, Pete. Even though it's overhyped, Squarespace actually sounds perfect for Nana's site's needs. Appreciate the warning on the ads, though. I'll brace myself next time I listen to a podcast. Anytime. Let me know if you need any help getting that site up and running. Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to support our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. I was raised as an only child with two people who basically hated each other just enough to stay together. So I guess you could say I've been mediating since well before I was born. Years before I heard the term mutually assured destruction, I was very familiar with it growing up in that house. Mason Francis Skiles, 45 years old. 10 years ago, he was deputy chief of mission here. 
until his wife was killed. He's damaged goods, but he's manageable. Happy birthday to me! You are unwrapping a brand new episode of The Film Board from The Next Reel on Rashpixel.fm. We spoil movies, and tonight we're taking a huge trip in both time and space to 70s and 80s era Morocco, but functionally remastered to represent Lebanon at one of the darkest times in its history in the new film Beirut, released in theaters this past Wednesday, April 11th. My name is JJ, and I want to start by introducing you to all our wonderful hosts. We have a very nice, happy group tonight. Say hello to the people. Pete Wright. Hello, people. <laughs> Say hello, Tommy Handsome. A fine Beirut to all of you. And how are you, Steve Sarmento? You know, sometimes being in the film board is sort of like being in an apartment without a landlord. You've got all these people from different places, and the rules just don't exist. Oh, that's a metaphor. <laughs> well, before we get started, I want to let you all know out there in podcast land that you can get more details on this show and all of its sibling shows at thenextreel.com. Find us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram at The Next Reel. However, the key way to connect with us is on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash thenextreel, where by signing up to support us with as little as just $1 per month, you can get access to our show's Discord channel. It's very lively and topical over there, and we just launched a new way to engage us with a pre-show battle royale chat room discussion on our live channel over there on Discord. It was really cool. So Discord, we found to be really a blast. It's fun and interesting, and we're continually having happy debates and you'll find that the clever banter you hear here becomes ever more interactive and personal with your subscription to Patreon there. So get on board. Again, it's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash the next reel. Okay, Beirut, I wasn't joking about it being my birthday today. It's actually my birthday. So let's get into initial Happy thoughts. Birthday! Happy birthday! Thank you. Thanks. Let's get into initial thoughts right away by making it all about me. Describe the present that comes from us selecting a movie eliciting this headline on Collider. Spy thrillers don't get blander than this. All right. Who's first? Steve Sarmento. JJ, for your birthday, I'm giving you three glasses of bourbon. One for the past you're trying to forget, one to get you through the challenges you're currently facing, and one for the celebration you have once you're going to get on the other side of the obstacles you're going to face in this discussion, because I think you're going to find yourself... All alone there in Beirut. <laughs> I like that. It gives me a little <laughs> bit of a A-team vibe to that, too. This is for the victory dance at the end. Okay, uh, Tommy Handsome, how did you feel about the movie? For you, I got you another ticket for Beirut, but not the movie. It's a one-way ticket to Beirut. So good luck with that, because it seems like a real charming place. <laughs> it's really interesting that you bring that up, because a lot of the criticism of the film is that Beirut is kind of charming right now um, and a lot different than it was in 1982, for example. But anyway, we'll talk about that a little bit more. Okay, uh, Pete, Pete, what did you think? Well, first of all, I'm going to get you, I, I actually have secured for you uh, a beautiful dish of hummus and some mm. olives oh. and some peppers. I like uh, unfortunately, it's it's uh, it's soured. It's quite old and has been sitting outside. And I feel like um, you can do with it what you what you please. But uh, it, it's okay. called karma. It's cinematic karma. You should feel better <laughs> about this, and you can have your stale hummus. No, I actually uh, enjoyed it too. And I'm I found myself just a, a little bit maybe unnaturally defensive because I have such a crush on John Hamm. Uh, but I'm uh, I'm with Tommy. I actually enjoyed this movie. I had a good time. I do have. Have some challenges with it. I, I think there's some uh, there's a bit of sloppiness in the script that I need help with, and I I think you guys are just the right people to help me out. 
Okay, cool. Well, I, you know, I'm not sure exactly where we should start based on that, but I, well, let's go back to Steve. So you think that um, that we're going to have this conversation, and I'm going to change my opinion a little bit, and I think that's fine. Uh, I the reason why I brought up the collider theme here is because I found the story to be very bland. I think earlier this morning I, I mentioned it as uh, the white bread of spy thrillers. I I didn't find a, a, too much of an emotional connection to what it is, but I think that you have some interesting points to bring up about the depth of the story and uh, where where really they were trying to take us with Mason Skiles and what he was going through in his life. So uh, talk about that a little bit. Where, where was your emotional connection to the story, Steve? Well, I, I think the, the key piece comes from everything that happens in our opening scene, which is in 1972. We, we get introduced to a lot of important people, characters, and a lot of important story information because we, we see uh, John Hamm, Mason Skiles, here at his house hosting an event and he we get a lot of snippets of conversation and we get uh you know he describes again sort of beirut he uses the metaphor of sort of the apartment complex without the the landlord and talking about people from different countries being there now you've got the pll plo coming in that wants to be in there and, and their whole point of being there what they're trying to accomplish so we we get the political climate there but then we also learn about his wife this sort of uh boy young boy that they've had that they're trying to adopt and how important he is to their family. And then we get introduced to his friend Cal, who is there now to take the boy in because his brother is a very important terrorist. And they've got evidence that this young boy who's 13 has been meeting with his older brother. So we've got all these different pieces that come together. And I thought, okay, this is, this is giving me everything I need to know. I trust Tony Gilroy as a story, make story writer, story creator. And I thought he's given me everything. And as everything plays out there and then we leap ahead 10 years, I thought, okay, now I know what the story is about. We've got different issues that he has to deal with, or we understand what trauma that he will be dealing with in the story. Because if we're going to give us all that information and I'm going to trust who's telling the story, I know that this is all important information. This isn't just exposition for exposition's sake. I'm getting important information. And so for me, I was intrigued with, what is the redemption story for Mason that we're going to get? So I took this as I set aside po politics as setting and not the focus of the story, but I'm going to focus on how do we redeem Mason as a man? How do we take him from where he was, as we see in 1972, to the depths he is in 92? And where, where can we, what level can we get him back to? How do we redeem him as a man? How do we get him past his grief? That's where I connected with this story. Everything else to me is set dressing and I don't get sucked into discussions about politics and portrayals of different groups because to me, that's all set dressing for a story. This isn't a story like The Post or Bridge of Spies where it's we're taking true events to try to reflect on what is going on today to give us information. What do we learn from the past? This is a story about a man that happens to be set in this. It's all side dressing. Yeah. So that's the approach that I took to this. And that's interesting. I think that um, that that's a good point. For me, it, it, when we, we talk about that, especially the stuff that's happening in 1972, you know, you talk about ex it, it didn't feel like exposition for exposition's sake, I, it, it, especially when talking about the relationships that were developed there is 
talking about the key relationship between Mason and Kareem, his kind of adopted son. I felt that that in that special in that place, which ultimately becomes one of the key relationships going on in the story, that there was a lot of telling that he's part of the family as opposed to um, showing us how they react together. The most emotional part for, for of the film for me was him dealing with the death of his wife. Um, and after that, I kind of went on his ride um, through uh, alcoholism and dissociation. But that beyond that, um, I think it's interesting that the the city was set dressing for you, especially because that's the, the title of the film. And the fact that you were able to divorce yourself from the sort of the political things that are out there. Um, Tommy, in your intro, I was mentioning that, uh, that some of the criticism of this particular film was that, that it's not re- representative of Beirut today. So it's a fictional story that's written for old Beirut. What's the purpose in telling the story and setting it there and calling it Beirut, do you think? I think because it shows, um, it, for me, the city is uh, more than set dressing. It's it's also a movie about, granted, it does not comment on where Beirut is today, but a lot of this kind of stuff is cyclical, especially America's involvement in the Middle East, America's involvement with other countries trying to write, trying to put our uh, motives, our ideals on other countries. Um, I mean, a lot of what Beirut was for me, especially, you know, in its relation to the opening that Steve was talking about, a lot of it is a ghost story. I mean, they set up a beautiful Beirut. They set up a beautiful family. They set up a America with ideals and they really want, to, they seem to be on top of it. We know we, we're so smug about it that we have this, uh, we can boil it all down to an apartment building. Here's where we're going. Let's hold hands. Uh, and then after, uh, it's how many years later is it after the jump? Doesn't 10 really years. About 10. Approximately. About 10. 10. Yeah. Uh, about so by the time we get to around 1982, everything that has been set up, everything that we have seen is gone. Right. And has been changed. Uh, John uh, Mason Skiles, Mason Skiles. That's a great screenwriter name. Mason Skiles is a shell of a man haunted by his past. Uh, the young boy that we met and were, yes, told to fall in love with, but I did. I was fine with that. I was like, you've given me enough to care about him. He is now completely changed by the time we go back to him. Beirut itself has been gutted. And I don't think that just because it doesn't talk about where it is today, that doesn't mean that this isn't a story worth telling. It's almost it's a ghost story and it's still a warning. So why? So I guess that, that that makes sense. And and I don't know that the debate about whether it's a story worth telling is important. But what is the reason i guess saying what is this what is the story saying in the in the best laid plans of men of oh. mice and men wait what is the phrase <laughs> it's best laid plans of mice and men sailors take warning right <laughs> there be is anyone listening here. okay anyways <laughs> yeah that's it um no i think it's another one of those uh telling it's a slice of history that shows how an invading force that doesn't understand what they are dealing with thinks that they know the best uh, and are trying to force their own ideals or try to set up agreement where there can't be one, not really understanding everything on the ground and all of the particulars and complicated involvement. Uh, we're, we go through that daily. We go through that right now. And so I think having this kind of a slice of the past, slice of life, the past uh, story is very worth going over because everyone in this movie, for the most part, is very... I understand their motivations. It makes sense. There's not just a, there's not a, like in Marvel, there's not a super villain that wants to destroy the world. Everyone is trying to save it and trying to do what they can to form the world into their own image. And that can have disastrous results. 
Well, and I think that's interesting. And, and you bring up the cyclical nature of the, you know, really the war that's that's t- overtaken that that region of the world through the years that we're talking about. I would say even from you know the nineteen nineteen seventy five is when uh, is when the Lebanese civil war began, and and then you have uh, until today, and there's still you know war ravaging in the region. Um, it, it, it's interesting if you if you point at that as the cyclical nature, um, but I think that my my sort of feeling about it is when we usually talk about stories worth telling, we're usually talking about things that were based on on true stories. Um, so I think that's interesting if we're using the fictional story to tell uh, to point at that political thing, and potentially that stands in opposition to what Steve was saying about the fact that the political uh, the political landscape was window dressing to what he saw there. Pete, do you have an opinion about which of those two? pieces, if they are separate, maybe they need to be married. How do you feel about that in terms of the environment and the the fictional story that we're getting here about Mason Scouts? Which was more important to you and what, what matters most with this movie for me? I, I didn't have a problem that it wasn't based on like a true story. The motivation of the story for me on reflection really is, is uh, as you know, the other guys have said, is is about using the the story, using the setting uh, as a, a sort of diorama to demonstrate uh, the machinations of politicians and, uh, you know, and, and the state and, you know, to demonstrate where that conflict, where the pressure points are in that conflict. And I think that is the interesting part. Um, and, and we know uh, that Beirut, the city and that Lebanon and that this area of the world uh, is just rife with complexity in, in terms of the you know, political and emotional heart. And I, I, I feel like the setting it, it made good on its promise for me to, to demonstrate that there are some, there are so many things we don't understand. And it's easy to transpose those lessons to today. It's easy to reflect. And that, that for me, again, this is a mirror movie, right? This is a movie that's holding up a mirror and it's saying, what do you, we, we need you to learn something. And the lesson, uh, or, or one of the many lessons is that, you know, this is, an example of uh, us sticking our nose in a place that we just can't mm. understand. And we're going to use this fictional setting, but we we all really know, we have this sort of shared cultural understanding that this stuff happened, it happens today, and have we really learned anything uh, you know, by by way of our experience in it. See, I'm gonna I'm gonna disagree with you a bit on that because I don't think this is a mirror movie. Because when I I look at mirror movies like that, like I say, Bridge of Spies or The Post, there's a character that's that's learning a lesson about that situation, and I don't think Mason through his story learns a lesson. I think he already knows that from the beginning. I think he he's aware of the complexity of the situation, and he he knows how to navigate that. This isn't a lesson of him coming to the realization that when America gets involved in things in the Middle East, things get messed up and screwed up. I think it's more about his personal story. It's not about a lesson that we should be taking. I think it's a more personal about dealing with the grief. For me, one of the, the strongest points in the story, I think the the lesson maybe he learned was about his relationship with Kareem, where at the end there, where, he, you know, he, he basically creams like you want to know if I was a terrorist and he's talking about that that night in 1972 and he says I wasn't that day but I was it, which the was next such day. a I mean that is just an expert bit of writing I thought that was beautiful in the morning that was I think yeah. probably the most powerful delivery yeah. line in the film. right and, th- and that talks about everything I think it's an imp- but to me that doesn't that's not like 
wow, that blew his mind. I never thought about that. I think that's more about his, the, the connection between these, these two men now and, and trust in their history rather than a commentary on global politics. I think there's room in both places personally, uh, sure. because I don't think what I actually kind of enjoyed about this movie was I, for lack of a better phrase, how grown up I felt it was. And I didn't mind not having an audience surrogate. There isn't really an audience surrogate for this movie. And I appreciated that because instead I was in a room with the smartest people in the room and they're already there and figuring things out. I, st I don't think that the lack of an audience surrogate necessarily means that it's not a can also be seen as a sign of the times or hold up a mirror for things. I don't know if someone needs to go now I get it in order for that. And I know I'm really simplifying what you're saying, Steve. I don't mean to be fl flippant about it, but I don't know if that's necessarily uh, that if one of those isn't there, that that closes off sort of what uh, Pete was. Saying. Yeah. And I, I think just going straight back to the narrative, Steve, I almost feel like you proved my point. Like the, his lesson uh, was absolutely hidden in the gap in the 10 year gap where he was grieving over his wife stateside. Uh, when he goes back to Beirut and sees what has happened to this place, for me, that was very powerful. His experience of saying, look what we have done. We Because the only experience we have on screen with him before is when things are working, right? Things are, are okay. It's complex, but we can still have dinner parties about it. And now we mm -hmm. can't have dinner parties anymore because we have destroyed things uh, through our politics and our weapons and our war. And and I think that is a very important lesson in this movie. And also, like in the in the labor dispute that he was having in the hotel, if there's two intractable sides, sometimes you can't just come in and say, I mean, the history that is in the Middle East, some of that it it might be impossible to solve. So you see, so so you're saying the change you see in Mason at the end of the film is, wow, I I have a deeper understanding of the complexity of this situation than I did ten years ago. No, I, I think we're talking about two different things. I think it's okay to say that the ch the change in Mason can be personal, it can be character. That doesn't take away from the fact that this movie has a message that is about, uh, you know, a, a higher has a higher calling than just his individual experience. Okay. So, and to talk about those two things in particular, that's I guess. So, what I I think I want to explain about the criticism that's out there about this film is that if the movie is based on the higher calling, if it's based on the political, you know, set dressing or actually the environment that's there, then I don't think it's okay to have misrepresentations of the Middle East. Then I don't think it's okay to go and shoot Morocco and say that it's Lebanon or Lebanon and Beirut and call the movie Beirut. If that's the ultimate goal of the story, then I. I think you have to do a better job of politically making things accurate. Now, to the point, I guess, that we want to say is if we go the other direction and we say it's about story, that's where, you know, if we really want to get into the story, that's where it felt a little thin for me. And, uh, you know, I've been impressed with, Steve, your comments about what was going on and your connection with uh, with Mason Skiles, because I never really felt that. Um, I never really, I, never, I similarly didn't feel like he went through a character arc, that there was a big piece of the story there. I thought there was some intrigue, but there wasn't a whole lot of drama there. So ultimately, that's why I think the movie kind of lacked punch for me is that I think if we do separate those two points and maybe it can be delivered together. But ultimately, 
I don't know who I'm going to recommend this movie to. Is it going to be the people that want to learn the thing about a political environment and what was going on in Lebanon that leads to today? Or is it the people that want to go see a spy thriller? I think the movie's kind of watered down in both cases. And in some, and if you put it the first place, if we start talking about politics and, and news and accuracy, I think it kind of fails. And I think that's why you're seeing so much criticism about the way that they chose to deliver that message that we're talking about, about the wars and about the cyclical nature of the things that we keep doing incorrectly in the Middle East. Are we seeing that much criticism, though? I thought that the the reviewers, at least, that their score is pretty high. This is one of those movies where the reviewers, if you you know, take Rotten Tomatoes. We've been down that road before, but where the you know it it ends up as a uh, you know forty seven percent audience score, seventy eight percent critic score. But that makes sense to me because they, they I think they probably expect it to have some born moments. Yes, yeah, right. That, that some born identity moments is my assumption. Well, like when I, when that car when she races up in that car and he sort of runs in. I sort of relaxed back in my seat of, okay, now we're going to have a car chase. And when we didn't personally, I was thrilled. I was like, good. I want to see these adults keep talking about these smart yeah. things. That's just me. This was more Michael Clayton than Jason Bourne. Yes. And I love Michael Clayton so much. I do love Michael Clayton as well. And I think it's but if we want to talk about the story, I think Michael Clayton's a superior story and reveals less. It has much of a more sort of wahoo at the end of it when you're talking about how they reveal the, the story there. Another movie that I'd compare it to is like Miss Sloan. We did, we did that on Trailer Rewind where mm-hmm, it was sure. the kind of script where it was a story that revealed itself as it went. And there was new information. There was there were special things to learn as you went through this story. Story that didn't have to do with the external environment. So uh, to, to answer the questions about the criticism, I'm seeing a lot of criticism like headlines from the New York Times where it says it was supposed to thrill instead it offended stuff like that. So I think ultimately that it's it is about that external environment. If if you see if you think that that is the true lesson of the story, then it it didn't really do a good job of telling us about Beirut. But I want to go back to my original question is who are you going to recommend? All you guys like this movie. So who are you going to recommend this movie to? This is, this is a challenge because it is, you have to know a specific audience. And this is, again, people talk, you know, as Tommy said, this is a smart film and it's, it's not going to, you know, spoon feed you information. It's, it's going to, has people that are already in the know. So there's not a lot of exposition where they're telling each other things that they would already know themselves. So there's no reason for them to explain in dialogue other than for the audience. So this is a challenging one because it's, it does straddle that line. And for me, I'm going to tell people if you want a smart, you know, adult film about a, for me, I'm going to approach it from the character side and say, if you're interested in seeing a movie about a man that is, has been dealing with grief and now, is trying to sort of reconcile that by revisiting sort of like going back home, you know, this is going back home, but in his case, home is Beirut uh, to, to resolve some things that have been troubling him for the past 10 years. His life has been on hold. He's been an alcoholic. He's been in a dead end job. And through what he's able to do through the story, he is able to then grab the reins back on his life. So for me, it's a story of redemption and grief and getting through that. And so I'm going to present it that way and say, that's the type of film that this is. If you're interested in that type of film, go see this. There is historical aspects to it, but it's not a. It's not about the politics. There are some interesting story points, but for me, I will definitely have people focus on John Hamm. Everybody should mm. always focus on John Hamm. Right. <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I, I think he did a great job. And I think that's that is another sort of uh, case that this movie is trying to make, which is and, and why he took it, that this is a case for John Hamm, you know, m- movie star. And uh, I, I think he's building a solid case uh, for for, you know, for that. And I want to see him in more movies like this, more movies that are smart, that don't make uh, all of the action assumptions that as T- Tommy brought up. And I think he did a just a terrific job. He's he's definitely the, you know, the number one reason if you like John Hamm. You're going to like this movie. I, I, I'd like to think. I think he really carries it. Not that it ne- needs to be carried, but I mean, he is just stellar. This is this seems like the kind of role that is written just for him. Which is great because he can be tough. He's very good at a bunch of things. And a lot of times they sort of string him out as such. And instead to just sort of focus him in because he's so great in the opening and then turn towards drunky Mick hair flying around. <laughs> like he just, he's <laughs> the grimiest movie star. There's we have a lot in this of movie, sweat in this movie. Works. Yeah. 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 Yes. Notable yes. sweat. It was a very well, sweaty movie. I thought the scenes where he was doing his job, right? When he was negotiating and, and what he's known to be the expert for, I thought his performance in those scenes was spectacular. He was perfect in the way that he did that. When he w- was taking on a negotiation and then appropriately distanced himself emotionally from what he was negotiating, I mean, that kind of stuff was really great um i thought that performance was excellent i i didn't really have the emotional uh adventure that steve had on this movie but i agree i think if you like john ham you, you're gonna want to see this movie in that respect agreed so uh rosamund pike that's sandy crowder that's the skirt that they bring in to tempt him so that he can actually come and join the CIA on their thing. What'd you think uh, about her? Sometimes in movies like this, I would say the Bourne identity movies, sometimes especially James Bond movies have thrown certain actresses into roles uh, where I guess probably the, the biggest one is what's her name from wild things playing the, Rocket yeah. scientist. I don't have any of the proper nouns that I need. You mean <laughs> Denise Richards okay. as Dr. Christmas Jones? Dr. That's the one. Christmas Jones. <laughs> Denise Richards as Dr. Christmas Jones. If I have a child, I'm a daughter, I'm naming her that. That's her whole name. <laughs> Denise is Denise Richards as Dr. Christmas Jones. <laughs> The third. That doesn't make sense. Yeah. The third. Um, the third. Uh, I like. I really like it. Weird, right? I'll figure it out. I'll figure it out. It's 2018. Um, I like that she played the role very grounded. I like that they, until the regrettable, very, very, very last couple shots, they didn't try to play up any kind of a love angle with them. Uh, she seemed very competent. She seemed like she belonged in the room versus just who gave this supermodel a headset and is doing this. I mean, she seemed great. With that being said, I still think that we can. I mean, John Hamm gets beat up with sweat and grime and hair stuff and all this throughout the movie. She does not. Yeah. No, she kind of looks the same throughout the movie. I think we can really just let these actresses put on hats, have some grime, have some stuff. I just have to assume that that is maybe I'm being cynical about it, but I just have to assume that's a, you can't mess up. I mean, they call her the skirt, but I just wonder if the studio is also like, you can't mess up the pretty girl in the movie uh, because she looks like no one else in the movie. That being said, I liked her in this role. Uh, a lot of times she comes off sometimes as a little cold or a little icy for me. And in this, I thought she showed some some very uh, different parts to her. I liked her a lot in this movie. 
Can we talk about what they did with the romance thing at the end? Ugh. That was so gross. He figures out he figures out that there that she has a relationship with Cal, right? And and then right. they have that embrace when they catch after being kidnapped and and stuff. So that it, it you know that, that that sets up that that actually validates. So why why is he hitting on her at the end? I don't take it that way. Okay. I take it I t- I take that as here's the guy that has disconnected himself from the world that now has gone through this is now ready to now re-engage and reconnect. And I don't see it as he's hitting on her. I see it as, because to me, it's always been a very professional relationship between the two that it's now like, okay, I, instead of hanging out in the bar and just drinking by myself, I'm ready to go out and have a conversation with the person. I'm ready to engage socially with people in a way that he has not been doing for the past 10 years because he's now resolved his grief. He's now over and past the death of his wife and can now have a you know a professional relationship with a woman. That's how I do. I do too, and I think she actually set it up, uh, uh, you know, well. It's it's set up well in the script that, uh, you know, she had a relationship with Cal, but it was not the kind of relationship you think it is, right? right? And I think that was smart, and I think it was, um, you know, it was sort of empowering of her saying, "Yeah, we had a relationship, and it was it meant for me the same that it meant for him," and it's it's just we, you know, there was a there was a hole in our lives we needed to fill, and it turns out we it was each other for a time. And I didn't feel like it was overly sentimental. I didn't feel like it was a thing that that was motivating her above and beyond her duty to rescue him. Uh, I, I felt like she was part of the rescue process because uh, it was the right thing to do. And she was the uh, a beacon uh, of this sort of alternate reality that was that she was experiencing at the office. Those guys were doing the wrong thing and she was the right thing. And it was it happened regardless of her experience with their, quote, relationship. And and I thought that was actually handled well. Oh, I thought that was handled well. I, I had problem with the John Hamm, Rosamund Pike. And well, oh, oh, well, that's what I mean. Like, that's what I mean. Like at the end, when they finally when it, when he and she have that conversation, I'm more in line, I think, with Steve that that it was uh, it was him reaching out to the world. And she was a vessel uh, of of him just sort of needing to recontact after this experience. He, he needs to uh, he needs to to reengage and. Yeah, and so. and I actually agree with you guys on that. It, that's a problem with the receiver, <laughs> the audience member, namely me, as opposed to the content there, because that's taking a leap that might not be there. And, and if you if you interpret it differently, that's fine. I think that if, for me, everything that you're talking about, Pete, is really interesting too, because I have a problem when I approach movies like this about spies, in that I I, I look at them very similar to a movie like The Game, where at some point in the movie The Game, I stop believing anything is real. <laughs> So when she's explaining, for example, well, yeah, I had a relationship with him, but I didn't love him. I didn't love him. I didn't let, she said it like multiple times. It it was nothing like all this stuff. I'm like, oh, she's lying. (laughs) You know, and then as they go on, like every, I think everyone is lying because they're all spies. And that's, and that's, (laughs) and that's my, my, my problem. And when I watch things like this, I'm like, I, if I, if I find nothing to believe in, how can I choose who is the appropriate people to believe? Yeah, I can. I hear that, especially because it's her. And in fact, she has been involved not just in that movie, but also in, uh, you know, Gone Girl, where she's like everything out of her mouth was a lie. We can't talk about Gone Girl. (laughs) That's that's the movie. That's the book that sent me into therapy. Yeah, that's a tough one. That's a tough one. I, I think it's the scene with Cal when Mason 
is finally taking it to talk to Cal and he's got one minute and he's got to get Cal up to speed and they're going to talk in code. And I think that's for me, the key point where the, the veil is drawn back as far as who can we trust and who can we not trust? Because we know that there is a longstanding friendship between Mason and, and Cal and business got in the way and the, things ended badly between the two of them. But I think there was enough set up to say that Cal is um, going to speak truth to Mason at that point. And so when he says, you know, I'm more comfortable in a crowd, you know, the Sandy beaches, that's telling the audience, we take her at her word. And that's that she that, is going to see. Be. And that's so awesome that you did that. See, the problem with my negative mind when I've gone this far into it is that I literally think Cal is telling Mason, you can trust her because I've manipulated so f- her so far that she'll do whatever <laughs> I tell her. Oh my she'll goodness. do anything. JJ, you're like your me. own double you agent. Are. Exactly. I can't handle this sort of deception in film. Anyway. I did think it was so lucky that her name was Sandy Crowder and the other guy's name was Gaines. Because, like, what if their boss was named Steve Xylophone? (laughs) Like, how would they have that cool... (laughs) <laughs> that cool code conversation. Like if you had, what's your favorite percussive? <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about those guys. Uh, who was the person that played Steve Xylophone? Um, well, we've got these other guys there. Uh, Mark Pellegrino, Dean Norris, uh, Shea Wigan, Wiggum. These are the people we're talking about. Mark Pellegrino is Cal. What'd you think of him? Well, I'm a big fan of Mark Pellegrino. I think he's, I think he's fantastic. And, and um, you know, he's, he is also one of those faces Um that you know he's been around a long long time um he's doing a lot of tv right now uh with you know uh, supernatural and uh, he was on quantico and he did 13 reasons why and uh yeah lost absolutely so you know he's a big tv guy but uh, it was just great to see him here uh and um i mean he's got just a boatload of credits 127 credits uh he was you know go back to his films uh mulholland drive he was in mulholland drive big lebowski capote um so i like him so moving on and then we got uh gains uh you know or maybe that's steve's phone uh how do you think feel about dean norris playing uh, donald Gaines? i i spent two hours trying to figure out why do i know this face (laughs) and then i realized oh that hair is throwing me off. That's right. why I can't place this face. Yeah. Yes. No, Dean Norris was great. I, you know, it just, there, the, the casting of this, it just, they cast faces that just helped contribute to that feeling of that era. There was something about these guys that just felt like, yeah, that's, that's Washington, D.C. in the late 70s, early 80s. That's who these guys are. It was a uh, just, yeah. character actor bonanza. Shea Wiggum yes. as Gary Ruzak. I think Ruzak gets as close as possible to xylophone. If Cal had to say Ruzak, <laughs> what's the code for Ruzak? <laughs> <laughs> what do you guys think of Shea Wiggum? I like him as an actor, and I think he did a fine job with the part, but he is sort of central to where things start to fall apart for me. And, and I... Yeah, I I, I kind of want to pivot here to our our uh, next real five star cutoff because uh, I'm I'm curious what you guys think of when this film becomes not a five star film for you, uh, and it's I I recognize it may be something that Andy and I are thinking about more than you guys. We haven't really talked about that all that much, but that's that's what we're talking about here. At some point in the film, it's we assume that it starts as a five star film, and then at some point it becomes not a five star film for you. And I'm curious where you think that is. Um, can can we diverge a little bit? 
Uh, oh, so you start out movies thinking that they're five stars oh, yeah. from the get-go. That's that's awesome. Yeah. I think Pete and I have been part of this conversation as well. As where you, at what point, if you're sitting next to Pete in the movie, do you just suddenly hear, bing, and that, <laughs> and that the star, star is falling off. off? That's right. So you start you start off with an empty bucket, and it's got to earn its yeah. way up to five stars. Exactly. Whereas we go in, like, I, I'm going to give you five stars, and it's those are your stars to lose. There's somebody, for so, JJ, awesome. there's always somebody behind him whipping him with a thatch, like, branch. <laughs> and at some point during the movie, they'll stop. And that's when it becomes right. a good movie. Yes, I'm like, oh, this is what I was waiting for. Because <laughs> JJ also assumes that person is a spy. Right. See, <laughs> named yes. xylophone. So, what right. what do you uh, what do you think? Uh, when did when does this movie start to break down? So, it, for me, it was near the end when we're at the hostage exchange, and they've just released Cal, and Mason's being kept there till the brother can come over. And I thought, okay, where where does the story go? There's you, everything's resolved where where are we going what's what's going on and then we get oh there's a secret sniper and i thought okay now now i'm interested because who is that which side are they on who are they going after and i wanted that maybe a little bit earlier to because i felt like the tension started to wane and i thought okay now we're into denouement and okay we're done but it it didn't feel like the right time for that and i felt like it lost a little bit of that and so for me that's where i felt a star disappear because it, there was such t- great tension going into that and it deflated for a moment. I thought all they needed to do was introduce that a little bit earlier. And I love how that played out when I realized who's been going on behind the scenes of like watching everything play out and say, okay, what's our moment? What's, what's to our advantage to just breach in and do what we need to do. Thought well played. I just wanted that revealed to the audience a little bit, earlier maybe 30 seconds earlier the idea of a Chekhov's gun to know that there's something else in play and we don't know what it is yet yes okay yes got it okay tommy what do you think i'm not good at this question yet okay i know that you brought this up to me before i have trouble figuring out because i don't go into movies as five stars and i wouldn't i don't know i mean this movie sort of floated along as a four star the entire time for me so i'm just not sure how to answer that question i'm sorry so the the concept of the question is interesting to me too as you approach movies because we were making jokes about how I'm you know saying impress me movie when I go in there but uh, I I think it's not too strange to say I mean we see the volume of movies that I want to go in and I and and we talked about the definition of what's a good action movie for us I want a fair amount of wows I want a fair amount of things that I can point back to and go that's when it like became special for me so it's it's the opposite for me in that I'm really looking for something special from a film. And to that point, when I went to this movie and when we talk about, you know, it floating along, there never was that really special moment for me in this movie. So I think I want to I want to turn your question on its head a little bit, Pete, and say, you know, I, I get why it was maybe a five star movie for you as you're coming into it. And these places where it might have broken down, if you were to potentially look at it from a different way, at what point did it really spike up? Yeah, no, I, I it, that's the problem. I, I, I can't look at it that way because I for me, the movie was great. It it was uh, a movie I really enjoyed until we get to a, a certain point. And, and it's sort of around Shea Wiggum and his response to handling the belt, the tracker of the belt. And that's when I felt the stars 
starting to fade uh, because it it on on one hand it felt like there were too many maniacal spies. I I didn't need both Shea Wingham and Dean Norris, and uh, they mm, started sort of uh, you know their their machinations started getting tied up, and I stopped being able to track uh you know which party was at it had the reins and some of that is good like some of that confusion is right. representative of the theme uh it's appropriate but right. but boy did i have trouble at the at the climax of the film at the big handover it, again introducing the sniper and figuring out who was the sniper was a sniper plo but uh sent by the israelis because they were you know he was disappeared at the end by the israelis but i think he was plo um, wasn't it the guy so wasn't it actually a reveal of the guy who was uh mason's handler? His handler right and he, but i thought and he, he was, was and he was employed by the israelis okay i mean that's how he i was working it. for israel yes Correct. yes okay yes. yes both that that and the uh it's done yeah. very very quickly yeah. but when the he's but that guy that that represents israel is like great job magoo yeah and so right because like, okay. there were two spies because we had the the mistress of the PLO guy that they, you know, go into his house. And then, yeah, the, the, the driver, they're all so lying too. We, they're all lying. They're all spies. Yeah. Don't that Israel them. was, Israel was fine to go along with all this, but they couldn't allow, as they said in the room, they could not allow to that man to go back out free. Right. Now, because right. of what he'd done, how, what he could do. Right. How did they know where this handoff was taking place? Spies. <laughs> there, there was another belt under the belt. <laughs> the belt's belt. Yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I asked this. I asked this legitimately, and this was a, a question that Andy is not here. He actually posed this the same question: How did the assassin know where this was going on? And and that is that gets to my question about the five star cutoff, right? It's when these kinds of questions are not able to be sustained in a spy movie like this that it falls apart for me, and that is the problem I have with it. I don't have a problem with the setting or the characterization or anything else, but it's tying up these loose ends in a way that makes sense on. Uh, you know that makes sense and make me want to keep following and by the end and the assassin I get the motivation of wanting to not let this guy go free totally get that but not being able to track and not having a clear answer to the question how are all these parties there when they've made such a strong case that the, that they had no idea where they were that they didn't have this triangulated signal and it feels inconsistent right because everything leading up to that point we were a party to that information i think if if it was that kind of story throughout where people showed up because we had the leap that there was enough intelligence in beirut at the time that that things were being tracked with the belt on the belt if if we had that belief at that point that would have been fine but we had been seeing all of the you know the stuff behind the curtain up to that point so in instead it feels a little bit like a a leap a logic leap to have them show up there at the that, last minute. That's a great but way maybe, to put it. You're right. Yeah. And and maybe the reason why they do that, or maybe the reason why they show that that's possible, is by revealing that Mason's handler and the PLO mistress were spies. And that's supposed to be the big wahoo of us. Oh my gosh, they're everywhere. So they know everything. Maybe that was the justification of it. But but in general, I I, I, I think understand that's how that I think that's honestly how I took it. <laughs> yeah. And it just let I let that wash over me. I was enough of like, oh, it was the caretaker of the old museum. And then I was fine. <laughs> right. It was enough of a Scooby-Doo moment for me. Yeah. <laughs> it weren't for you lousy kids. Yeah. <laughs> I uh, I also want us to point back to uh, Idir Chender. Uh, he was the grown-up Kareem 
um, in in general, he had he had some interesting stuff to do because he had really conflicted emotions throughout. How did you guys feel like he uh, he portrayed uh, this this interesting character? I thought he humanized uh, a character and made him believable and understandable in a very very short amount of time. Uh, I thought I thought the writing was really good for him, but also we brought up that line about when did you turn into a terrorist? But I found him he made he's one of the reasons that for me it kept the movie from being uh, bad guys, good guys. Right. That there were really no real good guys. No. Well, bad is <laughs> it's pretty bad to do what you're doing, subjective. but at least you have it's subjective and you they have reasons for why they're doing it. Yeah. You can, and they're they're comp, they're complex reasons, yes. which I think the the dynamic of their relationship, which is you know, for for Mason, it was like this this was his his son, who you know when Kareem's brother you know basically extricates him from from the house results in you know Mason's wife dying. So I can see how Mason is going to hold Kareem sort of like that guilt. You know, it's like you're responsible for the death of my wife, for your, you know, your surrogate mother. That's that's on you and your brother. And then, you know, for Kareem, like, you know, his older brother and being a 13 year old and sort of looking up to your older brother and, and wanting to keep your family safe and knowing that, you know, Mason was in a position possibly to to just turn him over to the United States government, you know, and, and feeling betra- both of them feeling betrayed by each other and then being, you know, brought together 10 years later to me it. The performance captured that dynamic very well. The, the complexities of what's going on. So it's not just I'm the good guy, I'm the evil, bad terrorist, and I'm unpredictable. There was a, a nice give and take back and forth between the two of them that made it not easy to resolve and to, to negotiate with each other that I appreciate. And I- yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I think, in fact, uh, you know, for me, it, it was he was the other standout performance in this film. Uh, and I, I feel like it was underwritten in in many areas. I wanted more of them yeah. trying to find a way to resolve the gap between them as adults, like with him as an adult, because uh, you could tell. I mean, he just played the heart so well uh, that the, uh, the conflict that he was feeling, but also the the, you know, the, the desire to get his brother back and to continue his, you know, his fight. And I just feel like there was a uh, there was room for more. And I felt a little bit betrayed at the climax of the film uh, that um, that it, it took an easy way out um, and, and didn't give us, you know, for me, enough of that resolution between, uh, you know, meaning the sniper or him. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The sniper, it would just became like the terrorist handoff and the assassination. And and it didn't give me the the sort of emotional resolution to what I think is arguably the most important relationship in the film between these two men. And so and so. that so I agree with you about it being underwritten. I think he did a great job conv- conveying the emotion that was there written uh, for him in, in, in the film that we saw. But this gets into some of the cultural criticism of what is going on in the film too because his character has two modes and that's it he's either someone who is has bought into the american way of life or he's a terrorist right so when when people are criticizing the way that we're looking at the people who are living in lebanon they're saying that we've devolved their role in the film or as expressed by this film, as one or the other. You only have those choices. And they have these multiple checkpoints. They have the Christian checkpoints that are militarized. They have the Muslim checkpoints that are militarized. Everyone is either militarized or 
accepting of of the invaders, right? So that's sort of the cultural criticism that's going into this. And then, you know, one thing I'll tell you is definitely don't go to YouTube to find out how people feel about this movie because uh, there is Lebanese people in particular are really angry with the way that their culture is being portrayed here because of that sort of toggle switch between two modes. And then, you know, we get into the fact that there are no Lebanese actors in the film. And then what you hear a lot when American movies try to take on films with people speaking English in other languages is that this accent has nothing to do with Lebanese. It's not the way that Lebanese people sound when they speak English. So a lot of this stuff, I mean, again, I think he did a great job. I think he had he had probably some of the most complex emotional things to convey in the film. But I agree with you, Pete, about the fact that I think he was underwritten because we needed to see more of that. We needed even more humanization, Tom. And I think, um, yeah, I, and I would have liked to have seen it from him because I thought he was a captivating character on screen. When they were in the van together, and they were yelling at each other, uh, it, it, having this sort of very uh, angry negotiation between the two of them. That was it was really powerful stuff. And I think both John Hamm and Idir Chender did a great job in those scenes. I, you know, I, I totally respect those the people who are frustrated with this film for those reasons. And I can't comment on them. I just can't comment. All I can comment on is my experience as a middle aged white guy who is is trying to understand a, a a situation that is wildly complex and that I have not been exposed to enough. And so I feel like I I'm I'm not going to go to YouTube and look at the the complaints. I'm just not because I I wouldn't be able to engage in a discussion. Um all I can say is this guy who is French, uh Idir Chender is did a fantastic job portraying this character and uh and I wish for more of the character, but everything else I just can't I can't take any ownership of it. Well, and I think that's an appropriate attitude because we're limited by by our own cultural background to see it. But I will say that what those voices are saying is then don't go to this movie to learn. If it's a complex situation, this movie is not going to give you the correct understanding of the complex situation that's there. That's what those voices are saying. Um, but I agree with you. I don't know that we have the uh, the appropriate way to. Well, and as as I said from the beginning, I don't think that's what this film set out to do. I don't think this is set out to be an accurate representation of you know, the Middle East conflict. That's not what the, to me, the purpose of the story is. And I think to try to hold it accountable in that respect is, I mean, you can, you can take things so wildly out of context to say, well, it isn't accurately representing this. Well, that's not what its function is as a piece of art. This is not to hold up a magnifying glass to Middle East conflicts and tensions. And, you know, I, I did watch, you know, an interview with Tony Gilroy and they were asking him about this and he said, well, you know, this is about, you know, Beirut in a time where you had people from in the 70s, you know, people from all different countries and cultures were living there. And this is a story about, an, you know, American, Israeli, Palestinian conflict and issues, politics in Lebanon. And he, he said, you know, for those people that have that criticism, he would ask where what would they add to the story to give Lebanon that voice to introduce Lebanese characters? Because that's he is focusing on story. And so that's that's his challenge of how do I tell a really good story? And this is the type of to- story he's trying to tell. Now, I guess you can hold them accountable for, well, then don't set it in Beirut. Find another place to set this. But for me, again, it comes down to focusing on the, the wrong intent. And I know once an, an artist releases his work into the world, they they cease to have any ownership of it at all. But I always try to take 
as best I can understand what is their intent or what is what do I see it setting out to accomplish? And I don't see this film setting out to make a statement about Middle East politics. Well, and that's interesting because remarkably, the, the script was written or at least begun, I guess. I don't know when it was in completed, 91. but 1991. Yeah. And he said in wow. an interview as well that it was born out of political discussions that he was having with people while filming a cut, The Cutting Edge. Which I think is really interesting. Um, which is that's <laughs> that's the that's the uh, different kind of skater hockey. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, okay. DB Sweeney. Wow. Yeah, no, it's which is also the story of Beirut. <laughs> yeah. That's what they should do. Go back and name the cutting edge Beirut. <laughs> um, let's talk about production a little bit, guys. So um, I, I especially want to hear from you guys about what uh, what particular things you found uh, shot well. What what things you saw that were really beautiful to you in this movie. I, it's it's sad, but I I found the the destruction of Beirut when he comes back after his ten year uh, jaunt away was uh, kind of uh, amazing. I uh, you know his uh, when they they put him in the hotel and he looks out the window and and the scape the cityscape that he gets is just rubble. Uh, I was I felt that sort of crushing feeling in my chest, like I was really moved. And then that reverse shot by that looking back at him in the window yeah. and seeing the holes in the building and the that, bullet that holes. Yeah, the bullet holes that lead almost to his window. Right. I mean, that was right. it was enormously powerful. And I think all credit to production design, uh, you know, to and and visual effects to to make that work and and make it reliable. And I say that uh, on the flip side, my God, their drone footage was disastrous with interlaced and it was is, just terrible. Is there anything to be sent about said that maybe it was so bad and it wasn't film? It was it wasn't even it didn't seem like digital, like high D. It almost high, looked like it was like a, a a screen cap of Google Maps, like moving yes. across Google Maps. What I, I think thought it, it looked was archival. Was I, I, yeah, I think it was a screenshot of archival footage that then they tried to digitally enhance, and it was real, real bad. Yeah, it was jarring. Like, ugly on screen. Like, I was thinking, where are my 3D glasses? Am I supposed to be watching this in 3D? Like, it did, was... Did I... I don't... Work, so, the only overhead drone shot that I recall is when he's being let out of the apartment after just meeting with Alice, and he's on his way down, and the boy hands him the note that says Kareem, and then he follows him through the streets, and then there's... As he's making his way following the boy we've got an overhead shot that's the only one i recall no no it's there's no no these are all flyovers these are all like city establishing there's shots. no one there's in no these. one in them yeah yeah okay you're not talking the, the like straight no, 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 down no, no, shot you're no. just no, talking those other. are fine. oh okay is that yeah, yeah. Okay. those are fine and yeah i i don't know why why you do that because what they did show when they when they showed the the scene that you're bringing up pete when they showed beirut out the hotel window that didn't look bad no it looked great you could do more of that and give the same emotion in a beautiful way um so yeah no i agree with you on that interesting thing because most of the movie is shot in handheld Uh, so i think that this movie taught me that i think i might just be biased against handheld because in general it's appropriate in this movie because of the way that we're following people around, where the where the audience member's eye is supposed to be, it should be somewhat jiggly. It, it it's it's a very organic storytelling device here. But I was I was distracted by it. it. It's not shot poorly in that way. I think that in watching this movie, I learned that I'm just biased against seeing that stuff. Um, but in particular, there was a scene at the end in the denouement of the film where uh, when Cal and Mason are embracing, they have something that looks like a, a setup dolly as you're and the camera's panning through the right, fence, right? Through the fence. And it's all right. it's all fixed camera. And then abruptly it's 
switches back to the handheld. And it was so, I mean, that kind of stuff. Why do like pick one? It, that, that kind of stuff from a production standpoint really bothered me. So I'm really glad you're bringing up stuff that you did find attractive because that kind of stuff, I think I'm just biased against it because I don't, uh, again, when the bomb goes off in 1972 and we run in with Mason to get to his house, the camera goes nuts, right? I mean, like literally it's bouncing all over the place and that's appropriate for, for the scene, but that I just don't really like that stuff. So I think that's my bias showing there. I, th- I think, yes, I, I will agree because I will always, if the camera work takes me out of, becomes so confusing or jarring or I'm disoriented in a way that I'm not supposed to be disoriented because I think what, you know, we've got the bomb going off in 72. We've got the bomb going off when he's speaking, you know, the, the chaotic, frenetic nature of how it's shot and edited to capture the feeling. For me, I, I never, it, it never became a distraction to me at any point in this film. And I think, again, it's your specific background and experience you know, I've got, you know, friends from, from college that, you know, when they look, they can't help but notice the costumes and like, oh, well, that's off by a decade. Right. And it's, you know, it's their own personal <laughs> piece for me as a general moviegoer without that specific, you know, background knowledge. There was nothing in this that, that felt too much, you know, jiggly monkey. Sure. For, for me, everything felt appropriate. It was not distracting or disorienting for me. Good. Me too. I thought it was very organic and not too fussy. And it did the, the, the handheld did calm down as some directors don't do when it's two people talking, uh, they'll still like film it like an action scene <laughs> and that's when it becomes <laughs> ridiculous. It did calm down. It just sort of felt like it made me feel almost like I was there, which I appreciate. I, that's how I like handheld is make it seem a little bit more realistic. Uh, it makes things seem more like you're really there versus watching a set which is what, of course, you're really doing. Um, and nothing re- nothing really took me out of it, except for that ending, those very ending. And actually, what took me out of it was the, ironically, JG, was the dolly shot. Oh, cool. So, that yes, belonged you noticed more, it too. Gotcha. Well, that belonged more for me in a Michael Bay movie. I mean, it slid over to the side. I like cutting the frame always, but showing the expanse of that and then cutting the frame on the right with an American flag yeah. while two men are hugging. Oh, God, I hated that so, none of, so much. And, none of the, and, and nothing, Brad Anderson and his DP never did anything else like that in the movie. Yep. Right. I, no, you never You saw- know, I'm, ve- I'm very cynical about studio notes and stuff. I wonder if he... Just in his coverage, they were they tried to make it. This is a hard movie, and how are we gonna? You know, we at least want to send people away saying, "Hooray, I had a good time." So let's Michael Bay it at the very end. Let's use that coverage. So that's interesting. Good. I'm glad I'm not the only one that noticed that because that, that. Yeah, I, I think I am susceptible to what Steve's talking about in terms of that uh, over hypersensitivity to it. So well, uh, and and you know, we should say. I mean, the, the Brad Anderson, his. Uh, I don't know, probably his most notable work besides this because of all the press is The Machinist with Christian Bale. And and there was none oh. of that kind of pandering in, in that movie. Um, and no. it, it was it was a very different tone. But uh, generally, I mean, I, I I'm with you, Tommy. I mean, that just that rings pretty true. It, it belonged. It belonged to a different yeah, film. Right. And I would think that if we were to ask him, he would say, yep, yeah. it totally belongs in a different right, film. Right. And it was not my choice yep. is my guess. Well, I think we've, uh, you know, kind of talked about our theater experience and whatnot and, and, and honestly, who we think should go see this movie. Is there anything else that we didn't touch on that maybe you guys want to hit in closing? One thing that might be a off ramp that we can take out, but something that I really enjoyed, it was a mix of both writing and filmmaking. The jump that happens when he's giving that speech and the bomb goes off on the side of the building. Yeah. That I thought one of the things that really struck out for me as I was recovering 
from the jump of that is it was written and delivered so masterfully because the one of the reasons I think it works so well is in that speech he's giving, he delivers the same joke twice in right. different language, which naturally it's that. So you can imagine how I feel with, you know, it's the equivalent of saying my wife is mean. So you know how <laughs> I feel. And my wife is me. And right when you get to the second mean, when you were naturally just relaxing because you're like you, you're a, you feel like you're ahead of him. You feel like you're ahead of the movie, and that's when it hits you in the face. I thought that was brilliant versus just having a cat jump out of nowhere. Right. It could have been in the middle of a sentence, but it really got me. I love that. So I think that's that's really good writing as well. I think the content of what was being delivered there is really good. But I will tell you that, Pete, this is another place where they talked about a logic leap. If there are terrorists that are intending to abduct someone with a bomb and you are hoping that this bomb is going to injure and kill some, but not the people that you want to abduct, including your operative inside. There's no way to do that, actually, to bomb a building and then hope that the people that you want to take from the building are not injured or. Oh, right. It's a blunt instrument kind of a uh, conversation. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I that, that. Some that, of is, that stuff. I mean, but movies. It's yeah. Movies. But movie, I but mean, movies. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It works. I mean, if it, as long as it's not too, as long as it's not Russian person holding up something in that last Die Hard movie saying you prick this and all the radiation goes away. Oh, I mean, yeah, that's yeah. insanity. This for me, I'm willing to <laughs> look past that because it was so well done. Cool. Yeah, I, di- I didn't see like casualties, like you know, dismembered bodies. It seemed like the car was far enough away that it blew a small hole through the wall to be disruptive. I didn't see it like, it's a lot of oh, we've got a body count. Yeah, yeah. So it was more to disorient it. I, I, I took it as, okay, we're using this as a disruption to distract everyone else so our operative inside can convey the information. Not, and I think it was, to me, as I said, everybody seemed to survive, you know, maybe a little confusion. I didn't see, you know, John Hamm walking over dead bodies. So I would have been more concerned if it was like, oh, okay, so, you know, out of this room of 70 people, these 15 die, you know, and how did they know that wasn't going to be? Because I didn't see, you know, death in that destruction. It was more of a A small targeted bomb to destroy the side of the building and not injure or maim or kill anyone. Mm -hmm, Yep. No, I get that. Yeah, but I, 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 I hear you. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, also, you know, I, I think that we're getting close to the part where we rank it. Tommy, are you going to sing about Beirut? <laughs> nope. <laughs> I didn't think so. I was just going to do the basic <laughs> flick chart theme because I started down yeah. a couple roads and I was like, Tommy, <laughs> there's just no reason to do this. Rain it in. There's no way to go, <laughs> yeah. right? Because there's so much criticism. Yes. They should, yeah, name it Beirut. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, so um, uh, everyone out there, you guys should check out flickchart.com to try out what we're going to do right here. The site provides a fun way to look at movies that you've seen by creating it's a tournament style stack ranking system and it organizes movies of your choice as they duke it out for King of the Movie Mountain. So the movies that we've talked about on this show can be seen ranked at flickchart.com slash TNR film board. Okay. Who's got the keys to the castle? I'm in it. I'm in it. Number, uh, up first, number one, Beirut versus Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice. Beirut. Beirut. Beirut for me. I was actually going to vote for BVS Dojo. Really? The second the time. The second time. I voted for that movie wow. in history. Wow. You love that movie. Yeah. It's your favorite movie. No. Happy birthday. No. <laughs> I better know which way this one's going to go. Beirut versus Demolition. Demolition? Demolition. Oh, no, no, no. Beirut. I changed my mind. Beirut. Beirut. I'm Beirut on this, too. I thought this was going to... I thought I was going to lose to Demolition. Oh. Fascinating. 
Okay, now I really know where this one's going to go. Beirut versus Get Out. Beirut. Just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Get out. You're fired. (laughs) Yeah, get out. Get Get out. out. Oh, you're abstaining. I still haven't seen Get Out. I'm still afraid of it. Okay. No, Steve no Looper. What about Beirut versus The Martian? Oh, The Martian. I'm The Martian on this one. Yes, The Martian. I'll go Beirut. Throw my uh, vote in the fire. Wahoo. How about Beirut versus The Man from Uncle? Man from Uncle. I really liked that movie, but it just sort of flew out of my mind. I'm going to have to say Beirut, but I might be wrong. I will go with Man from Uncle. Uh-oh. Uh, I, I kind of can't believe I'm saying this, but I'm going to go with The Man from Uncle. Nice. Yeah. How about, oh, Beirut versus Black Panther? Black Panther. Yes. Beirut. I know. What? Wow. Oh, I'm Black Panther. Don't worry about it. Oh, I'm worried. I'm a little worried about it. I'm just a little worried about don't it. How about, about it. Beirut versus Rogue One? Oh, Tony Gilroy. Um, hmm. I'm gonna say Rogue One. I'm, Beiru- oh. I'm Be- Beirut. Uh, I'm Rogue One. I will say Rogue okay. One. Coward. We're all over the place. <laughs> We're all over the place. It's great. I love it. Uh, that puts Beirut at number eighteen. Wow. On our flick chart, Ooh. that's right between Fury at seventeen and Demolition at nineteen. Okay. I feel really good about it. I feel spot. terrible about it. I'm really interested <laughs> to hear what Andy's going to say. But yeah, great. Uh, now, if we were to go by the algorithm mm-hmm. uh, uh, for Beirut, this is what Flickchart says we should be saying in terms of a star rating. It should be three and a half stars on letterbox.com slash the next reel. Uh, what do you guys think about that? I will accept that as an opening bid. I think it makes, I, I agree with Flickchart for you guys. For me, it's a two-star film. Interesting. And for me, it's a four, but I'm fine with 3.5. It was, uh, yeah, it, I'm I'm actually with Tommy. It was a four for me too. Um, and so four plus, four, Steve, do you, are you going to stick with 3.5? Yes, I'm going to stick with 3.5. Because I know you brought two briefcases with 3.9 stars in them. So. <laughs> and I am a dislike. I'm a no heart on this movie. I'm, I'm definitely a heart on this movie. Uh, that puts us at 3.375 oh, yes. yeah. stars. Perfect. Rounds back up to three and a half. That's fine. Uh, with uh, with a heart. I think people come for the banter, but they stay for the math. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's settled science, Tommy. Settled science. So where do we go from here next month? It's interesting that we just went with Rogue One because now we're into the second. In May, we're going to do the second of the Star Wars stories, right? So out of the Skywalker saga, we are stepping back in with Solo. Solo, you can't even hear it. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea since I've seen no trailers. I don't know what to expect. Well, that but so are you excited? I I, I tell you, I'm going to walk in with five stars, and we'll see how many I walk <laughs> out with. Do you know who's in it? Are you excited about? Do you know anything, or is you just like total? Yeah, media? No, no, I know the casting. Okay, I know the casting, and I know there was the change in directors. Yep. Yeah, production uh, went off without a hitch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, you know, I again, I tried to walk in. So when I when I talk about going in with my five stars, it's five stars for what I expect this type of film to accomplish. I'm not like, Oh, it's, it's solo. Oh, it's this type of film. Like, okay, it's going to be fun. I'm going to put my 14 year old brain on and I'm going to let loose my inner child. and I'm just going to go have fun and I will see how much fun I have. So for example, today, our family was rewatching, uh, Jumanji, Ah, the 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 second, the second one. Welcome to the jungle. And, uh, 
And uh, my brother's in town and we were talking about it we, and he had never seen it. And we're about, you know, 15 minutes in and we're both talking about how this movie is so much better than Ready Player One, that it knows how to have fun. It knows what type of movie it is. I it is 100% just, agree with you on that. 100%. And so it's like, yeah, I will give that more stars than Ready Player One because it knows what it is. So with Solo, I hope it knows what type of film it is. I, I know what I usually expect from Ron Howard. So I'm just super excited for Amelia Clark yeah. and I love Alden Ehrenreich too. I, uh, Donald yeah. Glover. I, I mean, it, it, I'm really excited for the cast. I hope they treat it right too. I, I agree with you on that. I'm, so, Pete, where, I'm what are you guys very doing on the main excited show? about Solo. Childish Gambino oh, and Khaleesi. Are you kidding? Right. I'm totally yes. in and I'm, I'm totally and enthusiastically and Mother I'm of such Landos. a fan of, of Rogue One as a Star Wars story. I like what they're doing with that. I love seeing these kind of prequel stories. I'm okay with all of this. I have let it go. I have totally let it go, and I'm excited until I'm proven wrong. So, good for that. Love that. Okay. What are we doing <laughs> What right are you guys now? doing we're on the, the middle, main show? Uh, What's your series? Uh, we're in the middle of the brooding James Dean uh, right now. Oh. Uh, we just talked about uh, uh, East of Eden, and uh, we're moving into uh, Rebel Without a Cause. So, you know, as we talked about, like, uh, if you're a completionist, if you want to just start picking actors or directors to watch all of their catalog you can't really start any better than than uh, uh james dean it's 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 low-hanging fruit with three movies right. uh, uh so <laughs> it's a good place to start we had a, a lot of fun with east of eden uh, it, it's a it's a movie that i i i i wasn't as crazy about it uh but i love james dean in it he's just amazing to watch so it, it, it was a treat nice cool well everybody tune in for that i'm super excited for the next movie on my list because you know Beirut was two stars for me but tonight I'm just going to relax and love life a little bit for my birthday so thanks so much for joining me tonight Pete Wright ah it's a pleasure JJ thank you good night Tommy Handsome a fine Beirut to you (laughs) and sleep well Steve Cemento Hondo Thank you all through the speakers and the earbuds galore for listening here. Come and join us on the interwebs at Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. And remember, you can also join us for fun, informal chats online by dropping us as little as $1 per month at uh, patreon.com slash the next reel. Once you sign up, we'll meet you on Discord on that golden live channel. Have a great night, y'all. At the next reel, when the movie ends, our conversation begins. Till next. of love I'm so lost without you that's for Tavis here on the film board we have covered quite a variety of great page to screen adaptations over the years from superheroes like Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight Rises based on stories like Nightfall and The Dark Knight Returns to horror and sci-fi like Max Brooks's World War Z and Hiroshi Sakazuraka's All You Need Is Kill which became one of our favorites Edge of Tomorrow with Tom Cruise and Emily Blunt And who could forget Andy Weir's stranded astronaut adventure, The Martian, or Dave Eggers' tech thriller, The Circle? Supposedly so much better than the movie. We've also explored Stephen King epics like The Dark Tower and It, biopics like Damien Chazelle's First Man, and sweeping sagas like Denis Villeneuve's take on Frank Herbert's Dune. 
And don't forget Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon, based on David Grand's nonfiction book about the 1920s murders of the Osage Nation. I just finished the book, and it's fantastic. It's always fascinating to look at the source material, and we often do as the book lovers we are. For those of you out there who love to do the same, head to thenextreel.com slash originals to find all of our past episodes and dive deeper into these adapted stories. And it's not just stories. We've included things like the video games Uncharted and Detective Pikachu. That's right. Thenextreel.com slash originals is your one-stop shop for in-depth looks at the sources for cinematic adaptations that we have discussed. Every purchase you make supports the film board and The Next Reel's family of shows. So what are you waiting for? Head to thenextreel.com slash originals and get your next read today. 